0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Coming to Know the Lord. In the first half, Christoffel Golden, Jr. shares his address, To Know Thee, The Only True God. Then in the second half, Mary Williams speaks on to know and be known of God.
1: In preparing my remarks for today... I could not help remembering a recent experience of mine. Some months ago, I enjoyed the privilege of presiding at a state conference alongside Elder Donald J. Kyes, one of our noble area Seventies. During the course of the Saturday evening session, often one of the highlights of a state conference, we were required to adjust our program at short notice because of the inclusion of some additional speakers. In view of the fact that a duet sung by a young couple was to be moved in the program to follow Elder Kaiser's remarks and precede mine, I accordingly quietly whispered the proposed change in the program to him. After doing so, it was quickly apparent that he had not fully grasped what I had said which required me to repeat my message a second time. Unfortunately this time, uh, to my dismay, his lack of understanding was now amplified by a look of incredulity and utter disbelief. Realizing now that I had somehow failed in my attempt to clearly convey the change in our program, I repeated my message in a manner which could not be mistaken. I said, and this time more clearly and slowly than I had done before previously, but with some added emphasis, Don, the duet will be sung between you and me. (laughs) This time my message hit the mark, for now his incredulity and disbelief was replaced by a nervous giggle and a hint of terror. I then reviewed carefully in my mind what I just said and at last realized my terrible error for when I had said the duet will be sung between us, he had taken my words literally. In other words, he had understood that the duet would be sung by the two of us. Now I am pleased to reassure all of you here today that neither I, Nor President Samuelson has any intention of singing any duet, anywhere, at any time, to anyone. (laughs) My beloved brothers and sisters, it is truly a rare privilege to be in your presence today. As I speak, our children and their families are viewing this broadcast in our home back in South Africa, where it is just after 8 o'clock in the evening. Just think about the power of modern technology. One day when I am released from this calling, Diane and I expect to sit alongside our children in our home in Featherbrook, South Africa, and continue to enjoy the blessings of these great gatherings via satellite broadcast. I am pleased to convey the love and greetings of the First Presidency to you alongside your parents and loved ones, the First Presidency, and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as stewards of the keys of the Kingdom of God have a deep interest in you and an abiding faith in your progress and development. When one considers the glorious work of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, nothing surpasses in importance and power the restoration of a true knowledge and understanding of God, the Eternal Father, and His Son, our saving Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Faith in a real and living God in the world we now live is in steep decline. The very existence and mission of Jesus Christ has been diluted by so-called believers, some who now ascribe to belief that Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher at best and some a good man with some flaws, at the very least. In contrast, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints theology stands fast as a beacon of undiluted testimony in the living reality of God, our Eternal Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. We believe the Holy Scriptures as they have fallen from the lips of holy prophets— We also believe in continued revelation as it comes to us through authorized and inspired latter-day prophets and apostles. We are not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. In this regard, the singular importance of the first vision and the Prophet Joseph Smith's first-hand witness of the Father and the Son are wonderfully echoed in the Savior's intercessory prayer as recorded in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. In this prayer of prayers which the Son of God offered on the eve of his atonement, the Lord declared, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou sent. In our discussion this morning, we will consider two principles that are fundamental to our faith. The first is a correct understanding of God. The second applies to our relationship with God. In regard to the actual existence and correct understanding of God, I will simply note here that it is hard to imagine any concept or idea that has been more misunderstood distorted or abused during the past 2,000 years. To many, God is mystical and distant. To others, He is nothing more than a manifestation of nature around us, and to others, He is a spirit who reigns in terrible power and judgment, while to a few, God is the invention of a childlike, unimproved mind. The diversity of beliefs is truly bewildering and baffling. I will provide here only one example among the countless of how differently God is viewed even among those within Christianity itself. Aristides the second century Christian apologist declared, God is not born nor made. He is immortal, perfect, and incomprehensible. He has no name, for everything that has a name is related to created things. He has no form, nor bodily members or limbs. He is neither male nor female. End of quote. I shall not comment specifically in Aristides' description of God, but I cannot forego the moment to simply say that Aristides' statement is much falsehood speckled with some truth. Even when acknowledging the fact that he lived during the second century when the early church was already in apostasy, one has to say that his statement does not conform to the Old Testament, nor the Gospels and the apostolic epistles that were reasonably well in circulation among the early Christians during our day, it is important to realize that the restoration of the true knowledge of God, and therefore of our Heavenly Father and His Son, preceded the restoration of any laws, ordinances, or principles that had to be once again restored in connection with this the dispensation of the fullness of times. There is something wondrous about the faith and the purity of the boy Joseph Smith in the spring of 1820 as he entered the grove of trees with a prayer in his heart. He inquired as to which of all the religious parties were right so that he could know which one to join because of his deep concern for the welfare of his immortal soul. Beyond Joseph Smith's brief but deeply spiritual account, the earnest reader is drawn into this event in a very personal manner. We sense something of the glorious appearance of God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. We hear the Father call Joseph by name while turning to His beloved Son. We hear the Son as our Savior and Redeemer and Advocate with the Father address Joseph. Throughout the account we sense the reality nearness, and approachableness of our Heavenly Father and His Son. And we are renewed in our testimony that God is real and mighty to save. After the first vision, other manifestations followed, which caused the Book of Mormon to come forth and the necessary priesthood, authority, covenants, and ordinances to be restored. In short, all the power and knowledge necessary for gaining eternal life was once again restored to mankind, but only after the true nature of the Father and the Son had been revealed. The Prophet Joseph was later able to testify with unusual authority, quote, It is the first principle of the gospel to know with a certainty the character of God and to know that we can converse with Him as one man converses with another." In regard to our relationship with God, which is the second fundamental principle which we will consider here today, I refer to one doctrine, a false doctrine of predestination, which should be sufficient for our purposes. This doctrine was expanded upon by the 5th century Christian theologian Augustine of Hippo and has governed mainstream Christianity for many centuries. According to predestination, the destiny of any soul is predetermined by God before any act, good or evil, has been committed by any man or woman. I will only say here that there is a terrible logic to a belief in a God who prejudges us even when His judgment is always perfect. There is also the depressing arithmetic of a teaching which holds that nothing that we do or ever will do in the future will influence God's grace or deflect His justice. We are thereby left with our final fate fixed, because God's prejudgment of us. Any thoughtful believer will readily discern the self-defeating potential of this incorrect doctrine of predestination, as well as the hopelessness it could produce in individuals. It is therefore not surprising that much of mankind over the ages have approached God with great fear and trepidation. In this regard, I refer to the well-known example of Martin Luther, the great reformer. When he was a young man before he embarked on the ministry as a monk, and some years before his work as a reformer, he had two experiences which greatly affected him. The first of these events occurred in 1503 when a dagger pierced his leg, rupturing an artery which could have caused him an untimely death. The second event occurred two years later in 1505. He was caught in a heavy thunderstorm, which was so violent that he felt sure he was not going to survive. It was this latter event, in fact, which caused Luther to promise that he would become a monk if his life was spared. However the most telling part in both of these life-threatening events was that Luther, when in fear of his life, not once called upon the Lord for help. Instead, and from the Latter-day Saint point of view, quite surprisingly, he called upon two venerated saints for help. In the first instance, when his leg was injured, he implored Mary, the mortal mother of the Savior, to help him, while in the second event, during the terrifying thunderstorm, he turned his calls for help to St. Anne, who is believed to have been the mother of the same Mary. In later years, Luther regretted his behavior for not calling upon the Lord during these situations. One possible reason for a good man, like Martin Luther, not to have turned to his heavenly Father, is found in what he said at one time, If I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. We should also remember that Martin Luther was not unique in these views. In fact, they were typical in a society in which man feared God and stood in terror of Christ as our judge. Let's now consider our understanding of our relationship with God as Latter-day Saints. I begin with this inspired comment by the Prophet Joseph. If men do not comprehend the character of God, they do not comprehend themselves." End of quote. Through the glorious principles once again restored, we are taught that the Fatherhood of God our Father predates mortality. He is literally our Heavenly Father, in other words, the Father of our spirits. The Savior, Jesus Christ, is therefore, in the literal sense of the word, our elder brother as the firstborn spirit child of God the Eternal Father. This vital understanding entirely changes the nature of our relationship with God. The Savior's recurring expressions during His mortal ministry now more fully resonate with us. Just think for a moment about the following expressions, Our Father which art in heaven. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect, and I send unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. We are reminded of the prophetic declaration by modern-day prophets and apostles in the family, a proclamation to the world, which declares, quote, All human beings, male and female are created in the image of God. Each is a beloved spirit son or daughter of heavenly parents, and as such each has a divine nature and destiny. Gender is an essential characteristic of individual, premortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. In the premortal realm Spirit sons and daughters knew and worshipped God as their eternal Father, and accepted His plan by which His children could obtain a physical body and gain eternal experience to progress toward perfection and ultimately realize His or her divine destiny as an heir of eternal life. The divine plan of happiness enables family relationships to be perpetuated beyond the grave. Sacred ordinances and covenants available in holy temples make it possible for individuals to return to the presence of God and for families to be united eternally. Because of the Restoration and because of a true and fuller understanding of mankind's origin and destiny, we know that we are not predestined to anything. Each one of us is, in fact, foreordained unto salvation and exaltation. The undergirding principle of foreordination is quite simple. Every soul who has been born into this world has already earned certain privileges on account of their faithfulness in their first estate. These privileges include an unconditional right to receive an immortal and resurrected body one day, and secondly, a conditional blessing which is dependent on our faith and obedience to God of enjoying everlasting felicity and eternal life in the presence of the Father and the Son. Now I should like to turn for a few minutes to the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost has many vital roles. However, I would like to refer to one which was so well expressed many years ago by Elder Orson Pratt or the twelve. Quote Water baptism is only a preparatory cleansing of the believing penitent, whereas the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost cleanses more thoroughly by renewing the inner man and by purifying the affections desires, and thoughts which have long been habituated in the impure ways of sin. Without the aid of the Holy Ghost, a person would have but very little power to change his mind and to walk in newness of life. Though his sins may have been cleansed away, yet so great is the force of habit that he would, without being renewed by the Holy Ghost, be easily overcome. And contaminated again with sin. Hence, it is infinitely important that the affections and desires should be, in a measure, changed and renewed so as to cause him to hate that which he before loved and to love that which he before hated. To thus renew the mind of man is the work of the Holy Ghost. End of quote. It is not surprising that the Prophet Joseph Smith counseled, tell the people to be humble and faithful and sure to keep the spirit of the Lord, and it will lead them right. Be careful and not turn away the small, still voice. It will teach you what to do and where to go, end of quote. Now, as we've gathered here this day, it is my feeling that on many of you if not all the spirit and the power of the Lord is rested in some way. All of us are sometimes unaware of the goodness of the Lord and his remarkable influence in our lives. Far too often too many worthy and humble saints have wandered about their personal condition or worthiness before the Lord. The Book of Mormon records that the Lamanites, who had been converted by Ammon, had offered a sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit, and because of their faith, had been baptized with fire and the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. I believe this to be applicable to many of the saints in our day. I also believe it to be true of many in this gathering here today. On the eve of the Savior's Atonement and Great Sacrifice, He promised these apostles that He would send them the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Christ, we are told, will fight our battles, and the Holy Ghost, which whispereth through and pierceth all things, will guide us. In conclusion, I turn to this the sweetest of our Lord's invitations. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now my beloved brothers and sisters, I cannot forego the sacred responsibility and privilege of declaring my testimony of the reality of our glorious Heavenly Father. Jesus Christ, as the resurrected and glorified Son of our Heavenly Father, is our Savior and Redeemer. He is our Advocate. He is not an absentee master. Ours is the privilege not to wonder at these things. I leave you with my assurance and testimony of this divine work and my earnest prayer that our Heavenly Father will pour out upon you His richest blessings. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Coming to Know the Lord. We've just heard from Christoffel Golden, Jr. After the break, we'll return with Mary Williams for To Know and Be Known of God. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Coming to Know the Lord. Next is Mary Williams, Associate Dean in the BYU College of Nursing at the time of this address, titled To Know and Be Known of God.
2: In a revelation given to the Prophet Joseph Smith for David Whitmer, We are told that eternal life is the greatest of all the gifts of God. When we understand that the entire work and glory of the Savior are to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, a most significant question for us is, how do we obtain eternal life? The Savior provides the key in his great intercessory prayer recorded by John, the beloved apostle. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The key to eternal life, then, is to know God the Father and Jesus Christ— Here at BYU, as at any university, we are engaged in the business of knowing. Our knowledge is tested on exams, on papers, in laboratories, and in applied settings. If you are like me, some of those things we know just long enough to take a test. And there are other things we know and retain long past any examination. I believe that the knowing spoken of by the Savior is far above knowing of facts, techniques, or theories. To know Jesus Christ requires a different kind of knowledge. To gain eternal life, we cannot merely be acquainted with him or recall some factoid about his life as if we were playing a trivia game. We cannot simply read about him. Knowing him is more than knowing his doctrine, and certainly more than professing his doctrine. The New Testament tells of many who spent time with Jesus, who heard his words and even saw his miracles, but who sadly never knew him. Knowing him in the way that he has counseled and pled with us to know him requires everything we are, and in the end— changes our beings forever. Elder Von J. Featherstone describes the transforming power of knowing Him in this way. One who truly knows Him does not, nor cannot, nor will not forget Him ever. Whatever daily task, pleasure, sport, or activity we may be involved in, His desires are supreme in our lives. If we become careless in the way we wear the garment, hazardly use the Lord's name, or serve only socially in the Church, we clearly do not know Him. We might even know the Church is true, but actually knowing Jesus Christ would dramatically change our conduct. We would no longer have a disposition to do evil. Rather, we would feel absolutely submissive to His will and turn our lives over to Him. Knowing Him is much, much more than knowing about Him. We gain understanding of the power of knowing Him when we reflect on His visit to the American continent. What happened changed the way those people knew the Savior. His words had been available to them for their entire lifetimes. Believers among them had taught of him and prophesied of him. But when the people really knew him, their civilization changed for nearly 200 years. This dramatic change in the Nephite society came because each individual had a thorough knowledge of the Savior— It wasn't a group of experience, although I'm sure their testimonies were strengthened by each other. Rather, this was an individual experience, a very personal experience. And as Jesus showed himself to the multitude gathered at the land bountiful and invited each to go forth one by one, saying, "'Thrust your hands into my side,' Feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth and have been slain for the sins of the world. Through this powerful testifying experience, hearts were softened and converted and agency used to follow him and know him. Sooner or later, every person who has lived on this earth will be given knowledge regarding the divinity of Jesus Christ. When he comes the second time, the signs of his divinity will be so overwhelming that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is the Christ. But as section 76 explains— that type of knowing does not result in a place in the celestial kingdom. Clearly being acquainted with or being willing to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ has limited value in the eternities. Brigham Young has said the greatest and most important of all the requirements of Father in Heaven and His Son Jesus Christ— are to believe in Jesus Christ, confess Him, cling to Him, make friends with Him, open and keep open a communication with our Savior. In a recent conference address, Elder Dallin Schokes indicated the ultimate priority of Latter-day Saints should be to seek to understand our relationship to God the Eternal Father and His Son Jesus Christ— and to secure that relationship by obtaining their saving ordinances and by keeping our personal covenants. One of the reasons a mere acquaintance is not enough is that it does not have the power to change us. That type of knowing leaves us as natural men and women. Unlocking the key to eternal life is unlocking the power to change our lives. Which power comes from the Savior, Jesus Christ? Elder Neil A. Maxwell describes the process of the mighty change, quote, "...the more we know of Jesus, the more we will love him. The more we know of Jesus, the more we will trust him." The more we know of Jesus, the more we will want to be like him and to be with him by becoming the manner of men and women that he wishes us to be. End quote." How then do we come to know him? I have received great counsel and guidance from John 10.27 where the Savior says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I would like to share several thoughts with you on how we can hear his voice, follow him, and then be known of him. First, the Savior will be our tutor and trainer in learning to know him and be as he is. He is there to direct each of us if we will listen to his voice through the Holy Ghost and heed his counsel. I have come to know that this direction and counsel are deeply personal and demonstrate not only the Savior's love for us, but his knowledge of us. When President Bateman was serving as a presiding bishop of the Church, he testified in a general conference that the Savior, as a member of the Godhead, knows each of us personally. In the garden and on the cross, Jesus saw each of us and not only bore our sins, but also experienced our deepest feelings so that he would know how to comfort and strengthen us. In this way, President Bateman explained the atonement is not only infinite, but also very intimate. One of the most profound ways to follow the Savior is through serving others. As we serve others as He served, we come to know Him with great power. The Savior has provided us with many examples of compassion and concern. We see Him with the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda and hear His words of, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. On the American continent, we hear him ask, Have ye any that are sick among you? Bring them hither, and I will heal them, for I have compassion upon you. As we serve, we know Jesus more. And as Elder Maxwell has said, to know Jesus more and more is to experience his attributes. We truly accelerate knowing him. As we become more like him by means of our imperfect adulation, end quote. Often we have so many opportunities to serve his children that we become overwhelmed at where to start, and so we do nothing. Our time feels so limited, but if we will follow the counsel of Elder Irene and ask the simple question, Please tell me who needs me. Answers will come. A face or a name will come into our minds, or we may have a chance meeting that we feel isn't chance. In those moments, we will feel the love of the Savior for them and for us. As you watch over his sheep, your love for him will grow, and that will increase your confidence and your courage. End quote. The very details of their needs will be revealed to us. Elder Irene has explained it this way. He, meaning the Savior, watches with us. He who sees all things, whose love is endless, and who never sleeps, He watches with us. He knows what the sheep need at every moment. By the power of the Holy Ghost, He can tell us, and send us to them." End quote. Let me illustrate the point I am trying to make. A number of years ago, I read an experience of Sister Garnet Faulkner in the Ensign. Sister Faulkner had made the commitment to befriend a re- recent widow in her ward. The widow, named Emma, was extremely reserved and quiet, and few knew her well. As the months went on, her sorrow remained. Grief and poor health found her withdrawing from activity outside her home and sometimes quickly terminating Sister Faulkner's visits. Still, Sister Faulkner was determined to be her friend, her sister in the gospel, and not let fear or personal rejection dilute her concern. One day, Sister Faulkner and her husband were on a weekend in San Francisco. As they walked past the large, steaming crab bats on Fisherman's Wharf, she felt prompted to take some crab home to Emma. Her husband suggested that a more easily transported gift might be a better souvenir. They searched in vain for just the right memento. Empty-handed and tired, they started for the car only to pass the crab-bats once more. Again, the impression came, and so they purchased the crab and a loaf of the wharf's famous French bread. When she delivered the crab and bread, Emma received them coolly and asked, Is this for any special occasion? Sister Faulkner replied, No, I just thought you might enjoy some crab from the wharf. Emma said thank you very much and closed the door. Sister Faulkner was disheartened and wondered why she had had such a prompting. Two days later, she received a letter from Emma. Emma described how touched she was by the kind gesture and went on to explain that on that day she was remembering her anniversary. She had wondered if her husband knew what day it was and if he remembered their marriage and their anniversary. She recalled their first trip to San Francisco and the purchase of steaming crab and a loaf of French bread. From then on, crab at Fisherman's Wharf and French bread symbolized the many wonderful excursions she and her husband had made to San Francisco. Then Emma said, At the close of the day when I opened the door and saw you standing there with a loaf of bread and a package of fresh crab, it was like a direct message. You denied knowing it was a special day. Therefore, I felt it was Ed's way of saying, Happy anniversary. I do remember. The sazier knew the intimate details of Emma's grief, sorrow, and loneliness. And because he knew her, he could give just exactly the right counsel to Sister Faulkner. Sister Faulkner had to be prepared to receive the counsel, and she had demonstrated that preparation in her anxious desire to befriend Emma. And when the counsel came, it was precisely what Emma needed, and Sister Faulkner became the instrument to do what the Savior knew Emma needed to have done. President Monson has counseled, quote, Acquire the language of the Spirit. The language of the Spirit comes to him who seeks with all his heart to know God and keep his divine commandments. Proficiency in this language permits one to breach barriers, overcome obstacles, and touch the human heart. End quote. One of the most powerful insights I have had in my life is that hearing His voice through the Holy Ghost and acting on the promptings are spiritually synergistic. As we hear and then do, we become more capable of hearing a more refined signal than we have been able to hear before. The result of this upward spiritual spiral is increased auditory and functional capacity as we are taught how the Savior thinks, teaches, and acts. Through these kindergartens for our character, we learn how to be like Him. An incident from my own life demonstrates this principle. One day I returned home from work. It had been a particularly difficult day, and I felt the burdens of the world— I was extremely fatigued emotionally and physically. I had not been home long when I felt impressions of a still, small voice that I should go to the home of a woman that I had visited taught for a number of years. She had been inactive for many years. Many times I would try to visit her, but I was often unsuccessful in my attempts. On the few occasions when I was able to visit her, I came to know that she had a strong belief in a Heavenly Father, but had been offended many years previously and had difficulty with some of the teachings of the Church. When I felt impressed that I should go to her home, my first response was, Not tonight. I am so tired. It can wait until tomorrow. But as often the case, the impressions continued to come more strongly. Finally, I drove to her home thinking, Why am I doing this? She probably won't answer the door. I knocked on the door, and soon the door opened. I could tell that she was extremely distraught. She invited me in, and her first words were, How did you know to come? I responded that the promptings had been there. For the next several hours, we talked about her desperate family situation her suicidal feelings, and her sense of hopelessness. I prayed that I might know how to comfort her as the Savior would do. The words came, the promptings came, and I could begin to see a calm come to her. That night forever changed my relationship with her and forever changed my relationship with the Savior. Now I never have trouble getting into her home or making contact with her. I no longer question the Spirit's promptings when they come, for I recognize them more clearly. We have had many opportunities for gospel conversation. What did I learn about the Savior that night? I learned that he loved this dear sister, regardless of her current standing in the Church. I learned how he comforted as I listened to the promptings I received as I talked with her— Did I know my Savior better after that night? Yes. I learned the Savior trusted me enough to let me participate as he met her needs. I was part of how he succored her. It was through the listening and the acting that I was able to participate in the Savior's plan to bless another person's life. I knew with great assurance that the Savior loved people who are struggling, and it made it easier to believe that He loved me when I struggled as well. We come to know the Savior as we try to emulate Him, particularly in charity. Elder Von J. Featherstone describes charity as, "...the very essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ." It is the very conduct and total being of the Savior. Charity is the pure love of Christ. Those who have charity are directed by it in everything they do. It becomes the central motivation for their living and being. End quote. This trait of charity allows our eyes to be open to seeing one another as he sees us. One of our nursing students learned that being like the Savior is more than being able to teach charity, describe charity, or even profess charity. Let me quote from her journal. I learned the deeper meaning of charity when I cared for a will-bound HIV patient who had lesions on his hands and buttocks. He was pale as a ghost with red-spotted rash consuming his body. He wore dark sunglasses, which made him seem even more ghostlier, and his partner sat at his bedside. Initially looking at the man made me physically ill to my stomach. I felt like I should hold my breath, toss the patient's gown, and spend as little time in the room as possible, for I feared that somehow he would sneeze, I would catch his disease, and bring it home to my husband and ten-month-old baby. However, when his mother entered the room, she went to him and kissed him on the forehead and whispered, Sweetheart, I will never leave you. The words, Charity never faileth, came to mind, and my soul melted. I put on my gloves, picked up a bottle of lotion at his bedside, and asked him if he wanted a back rub. That day I felt like I understood the words of the Savior more than ever before. If ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. I have been raised with the belief that homosexuality and IV drug abuse are immoral, unethical, and simply wrong. I do believe that there comes a turning point in each person's life. We must decide when we come to this point whether we will love others for who they are, surrendering judgment and criticism, or allow our prejudgments and the social barriers of the world to stifle another spiritual growth as well as our own. This student learned the powerful truth that we can be taught as we open our minds and hearts to learning from others who are also trying to emulate the Savior in their behavior. Coming to know the Savior, learning to hear His voice, and allowing Him to be our shepherd also requires commitment. This type of commitment requires all that we have and are. The young man in the New Testament desired to have eternal life and was committed to hearing what the Savior told him he should do to achieve it. Yet, he could not bring himself to act on what he had heard. My great-great-grandmother, Elizabeth Taylor Reynolds, made such a commitment. She heard the gospel taught in England and listened to the Spirit and was baptized. She and her mother acted on what the Spirit taught them after their baptism, and made the commitment to journey to Zion. The summer of 1856 found her with approximately 500 English saints camped in Nebraska. They heard many reasons why they should not attempt the handcart trek to the Great Salt Lake at that time of year. Elizabeth and her mother voted with the company to move forward and leaned on their trust of God. They survived the terrible snowy winter in Martin's Cove, but their uncle who accompanied them did not. They were rescued by young men who had listened and acted on the counsel of a prophet. She could never look at another handcart after that. But then the handcart wasn't the important part of her experience. Elizabeth learned that hearing the shepherd's voice— and following it may not be easy and may be highly inconvenient, uncomfortable, and potentially life-threatening. To come to know the Lord does require sacrifice, especially the sacrifice of our time, our talents, and everything with which we have been blessed. Elizabeth came to her sacrifice with a deep abiding knowledge of the Lord and His purposes— And so will we. Last summer I made the visit to Martin's Cove, a place made hallowed by their ultimate sacrifice. Because of her sacrifice, I have had the opportunity of the gospel in my life and the opportunity of coming to know the shepherd. Through the process of our listening and doing, the Lord comes to know us— It is true that He knows everything there is to know about us, and He still loves us. Nothing we do or fail to do will ever diminish His love for us. But through our active listening and faithful doing, we demonstrate to Him that He can trust us, and we are known of Him in an entirely different way. We are known by Him in friendship and trust— We are his. Mary Ellen Edmonds describes it this way in her book, Love is a Verb. While in the post office, she noticed a man who looked like he had come from Mexico. He was trying to buy stamps from the stamp machine with a very worn $5 bill. The stamp machine repeatedly rejected the bill. Mary Ellen was struck with a deep feeling that she wanted to help the man get his stamps. She found new Chris Bills in her purse, and she and the man were able to buy the stamps he needed. Mary Ellen then writes, I had another thought that added even more meaning to the experience. I imagined them up there somewhere in a meeting. I could imagine someone interrupting the meeting with an important message. Excuse me, I hate to interrupt, but there's a man down there in the Springville Post Office— And he's trying to get some stamps and can't make the machine work. Wouldn't it be something if someone in the meeting had said, It's okay. Edmonds is on her way. She'll help him. We can go back to the agenda. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God could count on me? End quote. Yes, it is a wonderful thing when God can count on us to do His work, to be His instruments in bringing to pass much good in the world. That's how I want my Heavenly Father and Savior to think of me. I want them to know me as a friend, as a participant, as a disciple, and a believer. I want them to think of me as someone who is trying hard each day, to get to know them better, as someone who is praying and studying and listening and acting and trying to learn to put off the natural man and women and become a true saint. Brothers and sisters, I testify that the Savior meant it when he said, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only. And I also testify that we come to know him as we hear his voice and follow him. For how knoweth a man the Master whom he has not served, and who is a stranger unto him, and is far from the thoughts and intents of his heart? My grandfather left his wife and eight children to serve a mission when my father was but a baby. My grandfather's mission president was the Apostle Melvin J. Ballard. Because eller Baldard was held in such high esteem by our family, I have often read his writings. He, as one who knows God and his Son Jesus Christ, describes what it would be like to come into the presence of the Savior. One evening, in the dreams of the night, he found himself in the temple. He was informed that he would have the privilege— of entering one of those rooms to meet a glorious personage. He describes it this way. As I entered the door, I saw seated on the raised platform the most glorious being my eyes have ever beheld or that I ever conceived existed in all the eternal worlds. As I approached to be introduced, he arose and stepped towards me with extended arms, and he smiled as he softly spoke my name. If I shall live to be a million years old, I shall never forget that smile. He took me into his arms and kissed me, pressed me to his bosom and blessed me until the marrow of my bones seemed to melt. When he had finished, I fell at his feet. And as I bathed them with my tears and kisses, I saw the prints of the nails and the feet of the Redeemer of the world. The feeling that I had in the presence of him who hath all things in his hands, to have his love, his affection, and his blessings was such that if I can receive that of which I had but a foretaste, I would give all that I am, all that I hope to be, to feel what I then felt. End quote." My prayer is that we may all know the Savior and be known of him, that we might engage in the powerful process of hearing the shepherd's voice and following him, and in the process become like him that we may be counted among his friends and enjoy a life like his, eternal life, the greatest of all the gifts of God. I so testify of him, my Savior and Redeemer, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Coming to Know the Lord with thoughts from Christoffel Golden, Jr. and Mary Williams. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.